folks and welcome to Pin Drop World News. I am Francisco aka AJ Camacho and I am joined here alongside my co-producers Diego Austin and Nicholas Castillo both of whom have extensive experience in the Holy Land which is relevant to what we will be discussing today which is the ongoing Israel-Hamas war and the security and regional political implications of it. We are also joined by our guest, Dr. Jeanette Tutunji, has taught political science at George Washington University as well as Georgetown University, and has also worked at various newspapers in the Middle East. Dr. Tutunji, thank you very much for joining Pindrop today. Let's go ahead and just start with a brief summary, and then we'll get into the discussion. Uh, just to catch you listeners up to speed. On the morning of October 7th, Hamas militants launched a surprise attack uh, past Israel's security barrier surrounding the Gaza Strip, reaching as far as 15 miles beyond the Israel-Gaza boundary. The attackers killed both civilians and soldiers before falling back to Gaza with what they claimed were around 150 hostages, what is now estimated to be about 200 hostages. Since then, both sides have exchanged rockets and bombs while Israel prepares for a potential invasion of Gaza. This is the first full-scale war the Holy Land has seen in roughly 50 years. It is the largest conflict a Palestinian actor has fought against Israel without the support of neighboring Arab states. Already, the initial attack has been referred to as Israel's 9-11, and frankly, that comparison seems more apt with each passing day. The fact that Hamas had the capacity to carry out such an attack defied all conventional understanding of the region's security situation and stands to completely upend the broader Arab-Israeli conflict. Some hope that this brutality of the war will eventually encourage all parties to pursue diplomatic peace with greater conviction. Others fear that the thousands of civilians and combatant deaths will only further divide Palestinians and Israelis and worsen the long-term prospects of resolving the conflict. Now, everyone, including ourselves and you listeners, uh, should be mindful of misinformation as this war unfolds. The Arab-Israeli conflict is already flooded with more misconceptions than almost any other historical event, and this war is proving to be no exception. An early, often repeated report alleged that Hamas militants decapitated around 40 Israeli babies, a claim that was ultimately unsubstantiated, although Hamas militants were known to kill infants in the attack. Similarly, many initially blamed Israeli forces for a fatal explosion at a Gaza hospital, whereas now it appears more likely than not, although one could argue the evidence is not conclusive, that the rocket that caused the explosion was fired from within Gaza by a Hamas or associated uh, uh, group. Now, for the latest events that we have seen, uh, the days of and just before we are recording this interview here on Saturday, the 21st of October, a small amount of trucks, roughly 20, carrying humanitarian aid, have been allowed to enter the Gaza Strip with a deal brokered by the United States, Egypt, and Israel. And two American hostages have been released by Hamas with, again, the cooperation of the U.S. government, the Israeli government, as well as the Qatari government. So that brief context established, I'm going to pass it over to Nick, who I think has a good first question to start us off with. Difficult events going on in Gaza and Israel. Um, I wanted to begin with a discussion of what information we do now have 
about the likely ground operation, which will most probably commence in, in the coming days. Um, Yoav Gallant, the Israeli defense minister, made a, a statement to uh, Knesset members recently where he outlined a broad three-point plan for the upcoming ground invasion of Gaza. Um, the first of those points will be a uh, aerial bombardment and ground operation aimed at, quote, neutralizing terrorists and destroying Hamas infrastructure. The second point uh, involves lower intensity fighting to eliminate what he terms pockets of resistance within Gaza. The third and final point that has been released so far is the, quote, removal of Israel's responsibility for life in the Gaza Strip and the establishment of a new security reality for Israelis. So there's a lot of language in that, which is, of course, vague. Um, but it does sort of hint at what we're going to see in the next coming um, weeks and, and likely months and, and possibly even years. Um, I'll say for the sake of full transparency, I have mixed feelings about um, this plan. On the one hand, in total honesty, I do support the ground invasion of Gaza. I think it's a necessity. Um, on the other hand, the uh, vague status of, of the Gaza Strip following the invasion, I think, is a problem especially considering we're not seeing a ton of diplomatic or political efforts on the part of Israelis or Americans or other actors in the region to figure out what a post-Hamas Gaza is going to look like. Um, on top of that, the idea of the complete re uh, removal of Israel's responsibility for life in the Gaza Strip, I think, is also problematic. Um, Israel is, is the way um, by which Gazans receive electricity and water and, and humanitarian aid, all of which the, the population there is reliant upon. And it's unclear to me if Egypt would be willing or able to step up and, and fill Israel's um, absence. Um, but I'll, I'll open it up to, for discussion. What, if any, immediate responses um, our, our, our guests today have to the uh, plan or the general situation in Gaza? Dr. Tutunji, would you like to start? What are your thoughts on the uh, Israeli three-point plan? Uh, I am completely and totally against a land invasion because <clears throat> I don't think they can root out Hamas without destroying Gaza City. And already 4,000 Palestinians have died. If you sit back and think about it, this is a fool's errand. Those 4,000 Palestinians, let's say each comes from a family of four people, and assuming the other members of the family are alive, Israel has created four <laughs> times four, 16,000 Hamas sympathizers. I suspect when Hamas made this attack on Israel, Israeli towns around Gaza, um, it wasn't just Hamas, there were other groups and just people that followed in once. Hamas breached the fence. I think some of those people were motivated by revenge. Remember, we had four wars, three wars, four wars, depending how you count them. And I suspect people who were doing the killing were not just religious zealots, they were people who had suffered great loss in the previous. Uh, encounters. If Hamas, if Israel goes in and kills 10,000 people, 20,000 people in the process of getting rid of Hamas, it will not have achieved its end. 
So, Dr. Tutunji, I am I'm sympathetic with, uh, and frankly, I, I agree with a lot of your skepticism about the IDF's capability to root out Hamas. Um, and I'd be interested to hear your uh, an alternative proposal of what you think might be a better approach. But I'd first like to offer uh, Diego a chance to get your thoughts on the three-point plan briefly. Um, yes, I mean, um, I... I definitely hear what you're saying about how costly a ground invasion would be, um, as well as the difficulty of it. Um, that said, I, I, I'm not supportive of Israel's mass bombardments of the Gaza Strip. I don't think that's accomplished much, and it has led to such a high civilian death toll that I don't think it can be justified. But um, I, I also understand what you're saying with a lot of these Hamas fighters being motivated by revenge and how a ground invasion might be counterintuitive to that from Israel's standpoint. Um, I mean, something I've been saying, um, I mean, especially based on my travels, um, especially to Nablus and Jenin, which are areas that saw high destruction after the Second Intifada, I think for a lot of these Hamas fighters, um, the time they were standing over a dead Israeli in Sterot, I think it was the only time they ever felt power in their entire lives. Um, and I think that there is something very tragic about that and that that is something that could be repeated in the future, um, especially as a result of this plan. However, as for the ground invasion, while I, I definitely hear what you're saying with how costly it would be, uh, I'm just I'm not sure what an alternative would be. And that, that's why I would like to hear what you say, because I, I have a feeling you might have um, some good ideas about that. But um, it, for, from my standpoint, it's just hard for me to see how any country after facing something this horrific as what Hamas did um, could respond in any other way other than taking out the regime that did that, that's right across your border. Uh, what, in looking for an analogy, I go back to Lebanon 82, 83. And you had Israel surrounding Beirut. And it was ready to go in, but was very reluctant to go in because Israel calculated that they would suffer a large amount of casualties in the operation. So if Israel does not have to go into Gaza, they could save a lot of Israeli lives, the lives of the troops. But they want Hamas out. You can possibly, and I don't know, this is just an idea, uh, offer Hamas a deal where they release all the hostages and they pack their bags and leave Gaza. They exit and hand over authority temporarily to Israel and then ultimately to a reformed Palestinian authority that would be in control of the West Bank and Gaza and could make sure that Hamas does not come back. Now, again, it's not going to be easy to get Hamas fighters to leave because unlike the PLO in Beirut in 82, the PLO were not Lebanese. Hamas are from Gaza. So it'd be much more difficult for them to agree to leave. But I'm saying this is, this is a hypothetical solution. I'm not saying this has uh, any significant force behind it at the moment. But if you have a ceasefire, 
negotiations that can be indirect negotiations through Arab countries, through Qatar, through Egypt, even through Turkey, uh, to remove the threat. If Israel is after revenge, Hamas has killed a lot of innocent Israelis and Israel has killed a lot of innocent Palestinians. So far, neither has achieved something positive. Mm -hmm. I, uh, what you wonder... want is to remove the threat, and this is a proposal for removing the threat. Um, and as for removing the threat, um, it, it, it just it makes me wonder who would take Hamas's place, because I, I have a hard time seeing the Palestinian Authority just being able to take their place in Gaza, because they're already very unpopular in the West Bank. I mean, Abbas is 87 and getting older and hasn't held an election since 2006. And especially among the young generation, um, especially among the people who grew up in the rubble of Operation Defensive Shield, um, they don't see a lot of legitimacy in the Palestinian Authority. I mean, in, in Nablus, a lot of the young men I spoke with saw more legitimacy in, in the lines than, than the Palestinian Authority um, because they, they just felt they had no opportunity for the future. Um, and that the Palestinian Authority was just complacent. And as, as in, like, I, I didn't really have a sense of the Palestinian Authority having much control over areas, many areas in Area A, particularly Nablus and Jenin. So it, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if the Palestinian Authority would be able to take on the added task of taking over Gaza, especially after these mass, or I don't know how big the protests were, but there seemed to be pretty big protests in Jenin and other cities after um, the, the news came out about the hospital. Um, so I'm just wondering who would be able to take Hamas's place in the West Bank, or sorry, in, in Gaza? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, my understanding is, well, this is w working out the details, and probably people will have more detailed and better ideas about how to do it as time goes by. But there are groups in Gaza who are anti-Hamas. One thing you could do is to start by enlisting these groups. The Palestinian Authority needs reform, absolutely. But if this is done under the supervision of Israel and in cooperation with Arab states, such as Egypt, Jordan, UAE, even Saudi Arabia, they could work out a formula for elections, for uh, some kind of uh, constitution that will guarantee that the people will be able to vote in whom they want and vote out whom they don't want uh, without interference from the outside. Uh, so, Professor, Dr. You, men you, you mentioned right there the notion of uh, Arab states uh, cooperating with Israel in the future, which I personally agree could be a, would be a huge marker towards seeing greater success in resolution of the conflict. But Nick, I, I want to turn to you with this question and zoom out to the broader region here with, with that notion. Uh, we have seen an increasing readiness to normalize with Israel. Saudi Arabia appeared to be on the verge of uh, doing just that. This attack has, I think, led to some questions, as we've seen a lot of reaction among the publics of the Arab world against Israel. It also seems like the Saudi government is not yet willing to go back on its decision to want to normalize relations with Israel. How do you see uh, this war 
changing the dynamics of the Arab world with Israel more broadly? So I, I, I will get to that, AJ, the situation in the broader region, but I wanted to comment on some points that Dr. Tutunji just made, um, and because I, I think they're important. The, the identifying of anti-Hamas actors in Gaza itself, I think, is a very important thing that uh, will need to be done in a post-war scenario. But to sort of try to defend uh, the ground operation, none of that's possible with Hamas in the region. And I have to say, I find it very, very unlikely that Hamas would ever voluntarily leave Gaza because I think it would be interpreted as a surrender, um, that, that you are surrendering Palestinian land to the Zionists, which I think is a complete non-starter for any Palestinian group that wants to keep its resistance credentials, which I think is always Hamas's um, top priority to remain the dominant embodiment of the resistance to, to Israeli occupation. Um, so, so again, I, I think, you know, trying to defend, I, I understand that the severity of a ground operation, but I do believe it to be necessary. Um, to comment on the regional implications, yes, obviously there's been a huge wrench thrown into the program of normalization with Israel, uh, especially as the war goes on and, and you see more and more footage of civilian suffering in Gaza. Um, it's going to continue to cause outrage across um, the Arab world and, and Turkey. Um, so that's obviously a huge problem. That being said, and, and we'll, we'll need to continue to monitor the situation, especially in countries like uh, Jordan and Lebanon, um, because they border Israel, because they have large Palestinian populations themselves, uh, and in the case of Lebanon, obviously, because Hezbollah is there and remains an important factor. Um, I do think, however, that, you know, uh, there is, it might take years, but there will be a return to normalization between especially the Saudis and the Israelis. MBS, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of, of Saudi Arabia, is clearly a huge priority for him. And one of the opportunities that I, I would hope could emerge from um, the war in Gaza um, would be that the Biden administration, which I think has shown itself um, to be diplomatically quite talented in, in the Middle East, um, could tie in normalization between Saudi and Israel with um, rebuilding efforts in Gaza um, and, and possibly bring in other um, actors in the region on this as well. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia, they want normalization with Israel. It's the best economy and has the best technology in the region. It's important for countering Iran. These long-term goals of, of the Saudi government um, they need normalization with Israel. And, you know, uh, when, when we talk about turning Gaza into a region of shared interest where different actors in the region are directly involved in, in bettering life and stability there, um, you're going to need good incentives because nobody wants to touch Gaza. It's, it's a quagmire wrapped in a quagmire. So I hope if you can tie normalization um, between Israel and Saudi Arabia to greater involvement in Gaza, maybe even making them one of the primary actors in sort of a multi-party coalition that would govern Gaza following the war, Maybe uh, that that could be a, a positive um, development <laughs> in a part of the world that sees very few positive developments. Um, Doctor, it, it, it might be a bit overly optimistic, obviously, but that's the hope. Doctor Tutunji, do you have any specific thoughts on either what Nick said or yeah. more broadly about uh, what this war will mean for Arab relations with Israel? Uh, a few points. One, look, obviously Israel is not eager to go in. It doesn't want to go in unless it absolutely has to, because it's going to suffer very significant casualties. There are alternatives such as, which are being used now, cutting off electricity, cutting off water, and uh, medicines, and food, etc. So uh, it's squeezing Hamas by imposing pain on the Palestinian population of Gaza. 
this is a tool that it uses a pressure tool short of an invasion. It's questionable how long it can maintain this, but Israel is in fact pursuing more than one avenue. In fact, so far it hasn't used the land invasion, it has used the other tools of pressure available to it. Uh, where this would lead, I don't know. I don't know how long it can keep up this pressure. I mean, 20 trucks went in, that's uh, a drop in the bucket. You need, according to the end, you need 100 trucks every day to support the population. So the population is under siege, and Hamas has the option of letting the people of Gaza starve to death or die of thirst or die as a lack of, due to the lack of medicines or making some kind of deal. And if Hamas is willing to make some kind of deal, uh, that is a big, it's a big step. Now, as far as the U.S. involvement is concerned, I think the U.S. involvement is, is extremely short-sighted. I think Biden sympathizes 100% with Israel. He sympathizes 110% with Israel. He cannot function as a mediator. He cannot function as an impartial go-between because there's no daylight between the Israeli position and the U.S. position. The State Department won't allow people to talk about the ceasefire. Uh, Diego, I want to actually loop you in here because uh, as Dr. Tutunji uh, just mentioned, the State Department uh, had circulated an internal memo encouraging against phrases like de-escalation or ceasefire, end to violence, bloodshed, and restoring calm in official publications. Um, when we talk about the U.S. response, what is your take, Diego? Uh, I want to highlight uh, an article that I, I think we all, or an opinion piece that we've all been uh, brought aware to, published in The Hill by Hannah Al-Shaikh. Uh, they were very critical of President Biden, saying that his response, particularly in the first week, was one of dehumanizing of Palestinians, uh, which has emboldened Israeli war crimes and is endangering our lives here, referring to the Palestinian Americans. Diego, what's your take on President Biden's response? Well, I, I mean, I think um, Biden is in a very, like, tough position where, um, where I mean, where we, we just saw, like, a very brutal um, attack on Israel to start this whole exchange. Um, but at the same time, now we're seeing these massive counter reactions throughout the Arab world. I mean, um, big protests in front of U.S. embassies. Um, Biden's in a weird position where I think he has to show, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, strategic interests come into play where he has to show that he backs Israel while trying to also create some leeway, some humanitarian leeway in Gaza, which I think is what we're seeing now, um, where as, as, you, as you're saying, um, circulating these memos, maybe banning certain statements because he does not want to stain relations with Israel. Um, while at the same time moving to open a humanitarian corridor. Um, 
I mean, I, I, I don't think it's really possible to get a pop, uh, like a positive reception of the U.S. in the Arab world after this. Um, I think he's trying to do as much damage control as possible. Um, so yeah, I think he's just in a very um, strange position where why I don't agree with the Israeli bombardments. I, I think Biden might feel that if he, uh, he might feel like it's not the time to um, be too tough on Israel and his rhetoric because of his strategic interests in the region. I don't think he wants to alienate Israel right now. So I, I think that's kind of where Biden is standing. I do also agree with Dr. Tatunji that I think on a personal level, Biden is very pro-Israel. He's a very long track record of very strong pro-Israel rhetoric. Even among centrist Democrats, he's known as, as one of the most pro-Israel uh, voices. And this was the case throughout his career. So I think, yes, he, he cannot be the mediator between the Palestinians and the Israelis. That will have to be left up to Arab states in the region. That being said, though, I think you know the Biden administration, to the degree that politically they have asked the Israelis for restraint, that there has been some rhetoric there. You know, Biden has said, uh, you know, uh, after 9-11, mistakes were made on the part of the U.S. and sort of cautioned the Israelis in that direction. I don't think it'll be very effective, frankly, uh, and sadly. Uh, one thing I often wonder about with this as well is Biden voted in, in favor of the war in Iraq, and, and that was, you know, the greatest U.S. foreign policy mistake uh, of our lifetimes. And so I wonder how much that figures into his um, work on this. And I mean, he has, him and Blinken both have put in a lot of work to getting as much humanitarian aid in as possible, um, which would not have been the case at all, I, I believe, if a Republican was in the White House. Um, the, the rhetoric from the Republican Party has been completely different. Um, so, but, but I do agree, he's, he's fundamentally pro-Israel, and, and that's probably where the center of his efforts to stay. I think it's worth highlighting there. I spoke uh, some time ago with a, um, around the time of Biden's inauguration, with a, a Palestinian Authority official, and they told me that they did feel better about Biden in the White House, but uh, relative to Trump, but much as what you just said, Nick, uh, that's relative to Trump, and they still have many reservations about Biden uh, showing too much favoritism towards Israel. I, I want to conclude uh, on, on something, uh, which is that Dr. Tutunji and I both co-wrote uh, an op-ed some uh, two years ago. And the fundamental argument that we made in that op-ed was that to see a, a broader peace, the Palestinians and the Israelis need to see each other as equals. And that one way that could be done was by President Biden backing more of Palestinians' uh, demands than he currently is relative to Israelis, to sort of provide a counterbalance of powers and try to encourage a productive dialogue. Um, I'll say, I see this war as it's happening operating in two ways. On the idea that it would promote moral equality, that Palestinians and Israelis viewing themselves as moral equals, it seems to do a lot of harm, unfortunately. Um, whether that's fair or not can be debated, but that certainly seems to be the reaction. On the other hand, the fact that Hamas could carry out such an attack uh, in the first place does to some extent attest to them having uh, a power greater than I think was previously understood. Uh, Dr. Tutunji, uh, you were my co-author on that piece. How does this war figure into what you wrote then? Has anything changed from, from what your view of mm -hmm. a long-term peace process is? I mean, there are minor changes, but essentially, Israel has a preponderance superiority over the Palestinians. So uh, the problem is both 
neither side understands the mentality of the other. Hamas does not understand the Israeli mentality. It, doesn't, it did not understand what effect its actions were going to have. It thinks it, by causing Israel pain, it can get concessions. It can have more power itself. It can gain more representation. Israel thinks something similar from the other side of the mirror. Hamas has not learned its lesson. We've hit them once, we've hit them twice, we've hit them three times. We'll hit them another time worse than ever before. So there's an escalation of the use of violence as a tool. And so far, it has been demonstrated at great cost that violence is not a tool that's going to solve this problem. You can take revenge, or you can make compromises and make concessions. The way Israel was headed was it isolated Gaza and pushed it out so it wasn't really part of Israel anymore. Right? It's not independent, it's not part of Israel, but it's controlled by Israel. I think in the long term, at least the current rulers of Israel, the current government, not this war cabinet that's of short duration will be dissolved once the fighting is over. But the current government uh, would like to annex the West Bank, and the settlers would like to annex the West Bank. What are they going to do with this population? They'll probably create an enclave in area A similar to Gaza. So there are actually three solutions, proposed solutions. There's a one-state solution, which could be a binational state. It could be a federal state. It could be a secular democratic state. There's a two-state solution. And there's a third solution where Israel occupies 90% of the West Bank and Gaza, 90% of Palestine, with small enclaves, uh, including Palestinians that are surrounded by Israel. Because it can't think of anything better that it's willing to do. So this is a problem that has bedeviled Israel since its creation, even before its creation, what to do with the Palestinians. And this solution is going to lead to explosions. You can tamp it down, but there's be another explosion in the future. I so want to allow Palestinians to live a normal life somehow. Give them some kind of representation, give them some kind of choice, uh, some freedom and dignity. I, uh, we're short on time, unfortunately, but I want to briefly, Nick and Diego, ask you both uh, one final question. Please keep your answers brief, like a sentence or two. But similar to what I just asked Dr. Tutunji, 15 years from now, in your opinion, is the security situation of the Arab-Israeli conflict going to be significantly different because of this ongoing war? Or do you think it will revert to something close to the status quo? Uh, Nick, why don't we start us off? 
in Gaza, the strongest possibility is something different, um, possibly worse, hopefully better. Um, we'll see. I think the West Bank will likely look the same, if not worse. Um, I, I, uh, Dr. Tutunji, you know, hit it on the head. Too many Israelis want annexation. The, the situation in the West Bank, I think, gets worse. So at Gaza, I think the, the, the steam has, or the, the momentum is behind changing the security situation in some way. Um, though, of course, it, it remains to be seen what exactly that will look like. Diego, briefly, what do you think? I mean, I think it largely depends on um, what people decide to do uh, with approaching Gaza, um, whether it's just complete abandonment or trying to find some sort of regional cooperation. Um, in the West Bank, I think it largely depends on two things, um, the reaction of militias there and the reaction of Israeli politics. I could see something really bad happening where I think uh, we could see a lot of militias start to mobilize over there. And we could also see possibly the further growth of the far right um, and settler violence um, in Israel. But I'm also not sure it depends on whether it depends on. I think there's going to be a big blame game within Israeli's political system after this. And I think who wins out in the blame game, whether it's the these sort of extremists we see in Bibi's cabinet or more reasonable people, I think that will largely um, I think that'll have a lot of implications for the future. Dr. Chitunji, any last words? Well, I think uh, the situation so far, the immediate result of this conflict, of the killings on both sides, is there's, an, there's a, been an in, a marked increase in hatred and resentment on both sides. And we are not hearing enough about this, but uh, the Arab world is boiling with anger. The Islamic world is boiling with anger. So I think what Biden did ignores all that. I'm slowly coming to the conclusion that Biden is not very good at foreign policy. Look at Afghanistan, look at what's happening with the Soviet Union, uh, look at what's happening in the Middle East. And I think in the long run, we have been set back. If you want, if you want peace between the Arabs and Israel, we have been set back 20 years, I think. Already, folks. To, if Israel wants to make peace with the Arab world, it has to take a different approach to the Palestinians. Alrighty, folks. Thank you all, all three of you, so much for joining me today. Diego Austin, Nicholas Castillo, my co-producers on Pindrop, who have extensive experience in the Holy Land, and of course, Dr. Tatunji, who has been a lecturer on political science in the Arab-Israeli conflict at the George Washington University, among other places. Thank you all for joining us today. And a last message to our listeners. A reminder, this is an immensely complex issue. And for all that we might provide you with some educated assessments, it's too complex for anyone to know with 100% certainty. And as you go forward and as events continue to unfold, please be skeptical about the information that is provided and reserve some amount of an open mind because it's a minefield of information out there. All righty. Take care, folks.
Take care. Thank you.